0: You're listening to the St. John's Diamond Creek Podcast, recorded live each Sunday at St. John's Anglican Church, Diamond Creek. Thanks, hi
1: everyone. It's good to welcome uh... Bob Mitchell with us uh, tonight as our guest speaker. Bob is from Anglican Overseas Aid. He's the CEO of Anglican Overseas Aid. Mm -hmm. Um, Anglican Overseas Aid uh, is an organisation which helps people throughout the world. Uh, They work on uh, development, which is uh, helping people grow their communities uh, so that they can be better established to deal with sort of the ups and downs that people face. Uh, They also do emergency relief work. So Mm. when there's a crisis in the world, uh, they work with local organisations to help people who are in need. Uh, So it's great to have you with us, Bob. Tell us a little bit about how you got uh, to be CEO of Anglican Overseas Aid, how you got into working in aid and development. Okay,
2: it was a fairly dramatic start for me. I went on a trip with a friend to East Timor in 2002. And um, East Timor had been uh, occupied for many years by Indonesia and when Indonesia left in 1999, there was uh, massive destruction of all the infrastructure that was left in East Timor. Um, a lot of um, uh, people were killed. There was uh, I had a, a friend who was involved with the Protestant church in East Timor who'd had members of his own family um, uh, caught up in all of that. And uh, the poverty in East Timor I found uh, quite extreme and such a contrast to my own very uh, sheltered and privileged background that it, it was the whole experience was searing to my conscience. Um, my job at the time, I was a, a partner at Price Waterhouse, which is one of the, the big sort of um, accounting advisory outfits. I'm a, a lawyer by background, and it just heightened within me my own sense of privilege and I felt that God was saying to me during that trip that I really need to respond in a a deeply personal way to the things that I was experiencing. So in the coming years I actually had 10 trips to East Timor. So I'd take my annual leave from PwC and I'd go up and I'd do community development work in in East Timor Um, and in the course of that discovered that actually that's the vocation that God has in mind for me, yeah. So then I worked for World Vision for a few years and then with um, Anglican Overseas Aid for the last six or seven years, yeah.
1: So it's a real sense of sort of God calling you to change careers, to move out of what you had been doing.
2: There was, and I didn't own up to that at first, you know? It was like my centre of gravity shifted over time to another place. It was like all the things that excited me and interested me and energised me in life Um, were this area of theology and ministry and development work especially. So um, it just took a while to become honest about that, to realise that actually what I'm doing here is going through the
1: motions as I stare out my office window and really I need to be somewhere else. (laughs) Uh, Can you share a story with us of something that you're thankful for or a way you've seen God working in the last week?
2: In the last week? Well... um, As you know, uh, it was the end of the financial year yesterday, (laughs) and um, like a lot of organisations, we depend on um, donations from um, the public, especially from um, Anglican churches and Anglicans to keep the work going that we do, and we met um, um, yesterday... The budget that we had set for ourselves, so it means that we're actually able to continue the good work that we do. Great,
1: that's great news. Uh, Anglican Overseas Aid is a mission partner of our church, so. Um, When people give money to our church, 15% of everything that's given, we give to our mission partners, that's Mm. people working around the world, and Anglican Overseas Aid is one of those mission partners. If you'd like to know a bit more, um, the missions board just out there has been updated this week with some info about Anglican Overseas Aid, so you can find out Mm. more there, or jump on their website and Mm. and find out more details. We're going to hear from Bob in a minute, uh, but Lenny's going to bring us the Bible reading first. Thanks, Lenny. Thank you.
0: Okay, so the Bible reading for tonight is Luke ten twenty five to 37. Uh, it's on page 843 of your pew Bibles if you want to read along. This is a bit of a classic. You should already know it. <laughs> so, um, yeah, if it's one that you've read before and you're pretty familiar with the story of the Good Samaritan, I'd encourage you to maybe close your eyes and just listen um, as I read it out and just kind of, I guess... Um, Yeah, just really listen to the words and kind of take it in. So here we go. On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he replied. How do you read it? He answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. And love your neighbour as yourself. You have answered correctly, Jesus replied. Do this and you will live. But he wanted to justify himself, so he asked Jesus, And who is my neighbour? In reply, Jesus said, A Samaritan, as he travelled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, brought him to an inn, and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him.
2: Thanks for that. What a great pleasure to be able to be here uh, with you and to talk about, I think, one of the really great passages of Scripture. The the problem with this passage, if there is a problem, is that it's all too familiar to us. You know, we've heard this story since, um, well, many of those of us who've grown up in in churches have heard this story for a long time. Um, Maybe you you haven't heard this story before, but um, sometimes... A story can be a little too familiar and you kind of assume what's there so what I'm going to try and do is draw out some different points about it but I want to start today by reminding everybody here that as uh, followers of Jesus Christ we are people who are on a mission and we're called not just to talk about good news and talking about good news is a very important um, thing to do but we're also called to be good news in the way that we lead our lives. Christians are kind of this weird community, at least weird in the eyes of the world, who go about blessing and serving God's world at their own cost. Um, And we do that because we love God and because in our own lives we want to give expression to the desires that are on God's heart. God um, has a deep concern for everything that he has created and his heart is ultimately the source of all mission. Uh, God is the wellspring of love and it's into the image of God that we're made. Every human somehow reflects something of the goodness of God and that stamps every person with a dignity and a value Um, And our Gospel reading today, you know, touches on that. But um, our our victim, lying by the roadside, is literally someone on the margins um, and he's a human in God's image and while he can't speak, God calls to us to exercise mercy. Being made in the image of God also uh, means being made in the in the relationship um, of God, God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, uh, an eternal community. And it's a community that's characterized by self giving love, by service, by obedience, by faithfulness. And I think humans are intended to reflect that same kind of mutuality and faithfulness and sacrifice and self giving. Um, It's a rich image to to think about Um, and it's it's an amazing picture. One of the truths that we are um, concerned with today is God's concern for vulnerable people and that's a concern that um, steps right back through Scripture, through the Old Testament and through the New. Um, it's It's a call Uh, to care for the widow and the orphan. It's a prophetic call. And this phrase, widow and orphan, it's almost like a kind of biblical code where um, a a code that's used to refer to any vulnerable group or marginalised group. Um, And in the New Testament, in the book of James, um, James gives an answer to the question of what true religion is about. And he says... Uh, true, this is in 1 James verse 27, um, true religion is to keep oneself unstained or unpolluted by the world but also to care for the widow and the orphan in their distress and I love that verse, one of my favourite verses in the New Testament because it speaks to the lordship of God within us but also the reign of God in the world. Right throughout the Bible, we're given these different pictures to think about um, that kind of point to the kind of people that we are meant to be. Um, We're told that we're blessed to be a blessing. We are to be a light to others. We're to be a city on a hill. We're to be fruitful people who do all all um, these great works and we are especially to be people, that group of people who are known by their love. The distinguishing characteristic is being known um, by their love. It stands out so much that people take notice. I sometimes think that when we divide up the Gospel, we can diminish it. There are two great commandments that Jesus gives us, and we actually heard um, a version of them in the reading itself. (laughs) Um, We are to love the Lord our God with all our heart and soul and strength and mind. And a second is like it, to love your neighbour as yourself. And for me, these are the two things, the two axes that frame our Christian life and our Christian service. Um, And it's interesting in Matthew's Gospel that he describes that second commandment, to love our neighbours, as being like the first. Think about that. Loving our neighbour is like loving God. Loving God is like loving our neighbour. The two things are intertwined. How could we presume to love God with our whole heart and yet not love our neighbour? We can't because our neighbour is created by God, is gifted by God, is loved by God, is welcomed by God. So together, upward and outward... Represents the unity of the gospel. And speaking of neighbours brings us to that brilliant reading from Luke's gospel in chapter 10. And it's a revolutionary teaching about neighbours. It was provocative when it was first um, given, and it was given in front of an audience of uh, Pharisees or strict Jewish people. Um, but it's provo- it challenges us now. Um, it's a story, I think, that breaks through ethnic and religious narrowness. And it's set up by this um, exchange between Jesus and the lawyer. And the lawyer likes to ask questions. You can tell a lot about people um, by the kinds of questions that they ask. Um, and the first question that the lawyer puts to Jesus testing him is, well, Jesus, um, what do I have to do to inherit eternal life? Tell me what I have to do. When we think about that question, it's a bit of a silly question, really. Uh, What can any of us ever do, what can anyone do to inherit anything? Think about an inheritance, it's a decision of somebody else. Um, it's not something that we've got any control over, it's something that somebody else chooses to do. The blessing of an inheritance is totally the decision of the other, it's not something that we're entitled to, it's something that's given, it's a free gift. God has done it all. All we can ever do is accept what God has done for us already and to learn from Him in grace. So this first question really points to someone who's living with a kind of a compliance mentality, someone with a works approach to life. Jesus, just show me the rules and I will earn an entitlement to heaven. And yet this lawyer is smart enough to realise that an open and generous and free um, and giving love of neighbour doesn't actually sit well with this kind of works compliance um, mentality. So he's got a problem. How is he going to keep control of the situation? Well, we see it in the next question he asks. He's, what he's trying to do is narrow down the group of people for whom he has a sense of responsibility. And so he says to Jesus, ah, yes, Jesus, but who is my neighbour? The subtext is about wriggle room. This is a guy who wants to choose his neighbours for himself. And so Jesus tells this wonderful story, this marvellous story um, to show the error of that approach. It was challenging then, it's challenging now. A man is beaten by robbers. He's stripped naked and he's left um, half dead. In In the Greek language, it's up to the point of death. And then this group of people, or parade of people go down the road and we're invited to reflect on their various responses. Why do you think the victim in this story is stripped naked and left unconscious in the way that Jesus tells it. I wonder if you've thought about that. I think it's a detail that's actually really important and it can inform the whole meaning of the passage. Some of the moral tension comes from it. You see, it creates a problem. The first two people down the road, the priest and the Levite, they are um, professional clerical types, they, their job is to work in the synagogue, um, to work in the temple and uh, there are all sorts of rules that were attached to that and being strict Jews, um, the problem was they couldn't tell, is this victim a Jew or is he a Gentile? Is he clean or unclean? Is he worthy or unworthy? Here's the thing, they can't tell by looking because his distinctive ethnic dress has been removed. Now, look, in our modern globalised world, people tend to wear pretty much similar types of clothes the world over. There are still some places um, where they have traditional national dress, I get to see a little bit of it sometimes in some of the more exotic places I go to, but probably not quite so much now, you know. um, People are all wearing jeans and T-shirts made in China. But in Jesus' day, um, in Jesus' day, the way you would tell groups of people apart and nationalities apart is by what they wore. It's hard to... um, think of an example in um, modern Melbourne, the closest I can come up with is when you go to the football, (laughs) you see people wearing their tribal (laughs) colours and um, you know know exactly the group that they belong to by what they're wearing. (laughs) Now, if you can't tell the group that someone belongs to by what they're wearing, the next best thing you can do is to ask them. And then you'll find out by the language they speak, um, or by their accent, or directly by what they tell you. (laughs) But you see here, the victim is unconscious. Can you see what Jesus is doing in the way he sets up the story? (laughs) He is literally stripping this person of identity. (laughs) The fact is he is a human. And he is telling the story in a way so that we have a a generic human and that's actually creating the problem or the dilemma for some of these people who are going down the road. I think the story teaches that our ethical frame must be based on our shared humanity under God and not on the narrower criteria that we might select for ourselves. In the story of the Good Samaritan, the priest and the Levite, they, on the surface at least, had good reasons not to intervene. They did, because according to the custom of the day, if they got involved with the victim and it turned out that he was a Gentile and they touched a Gentile, then that would render them ritually unclean, which meant that they couldn't perform the religious duties, which was their job. Um, and they're off to Jericho. Jericho is a Jewish town, um, and they're on their way to the synagogue there. And, um, you know, if they touched this guy and he was a Gentile, um, that would be a big problem for them. Or if they tried to help and the victim died on them and they touched a corpse, that would render them ritually unclean. Um, or if they'd come into contact with blood, that would have rendered them ritually unclean. So there's a big problem here, and they're thinking, yeah, what do we do? So they do nothing. You could become clean again, uh, ritually clean, but it was a complex process. It took time. I think in telling us this story, Jesus is trying to say that the law was never meant to be about limiting our love, or our care for other people. And when you think about the life of Jesus, you see it. Jesus heals on the Sabbath. Jesus touches the leper. Jesus hangs around with sinners and outcasts and tax collectors and people like that. I wonder whether sometimes we rationalise to ourselves... Um, our own failure to help? Do we seek to justify ourselves? You know, we can come up with good reasons or reasons that sound good for not getting involved, um, not doing anything, and sometimes our own self-deception can be based up, based on splitting up the gospel. Love of God, From love of neighbour. I like to remind myself of Jesus' own words, Um, again this is from Matthew's Gospel, where Jesus says, concentrate on the weightier matters of the law, like justice and mercy. He's actually quoting Hosea, he says it twice in Matthew's Gospel. So, in the story of the Good Samaritan, the one who displays Christ-like compassion is actually the hated Samaritan. Um, Now, uh, I I won't go into um, the whole history of why the Jews and the Samaritans didn't get on, um, but uh, they didn't. Um, They were sworn enemies... Um, but the one who displays the extraordinary compassion in this story um, is the good Samaritan, and he he helps indiscriminately, he doesn't care about the identity of the victim, and he's the one who's praised by Jesus and and the one that we're asked to to follow in our own conduct. Jesus' audience would have gone into shock. You know, this outsider, this Samaritan, this enemy... (laughs) is the one acting like the true servant of God and um, you know the the person who is delivering the lesson about true morality um, is this outsider and I wonder whether there are outsiders sometimes who can teach us things. There's certainly a contrast that's being painted in the story, might even be a hint of sarcasm. it didn't come out so well in the translation that was just read, um, but actually there is a quote um, from Psalm 147.3 there about binding up the wounds of the broken. So the Good Samaritan is binding up the wounds of the, of the, uh, the victim um, and he's pouring out the oil and the wine to do that on the wounds of the victim. Um, and I think that's very deliberate. Um, the quote is actually from one, Psalm 147.3, which talks about God binding up the wounds of the broken. The language that's being used, it's quite deliberate. And it's, it's, um, it is uh, liturgical language. It's the language of um, the priest. And it's like Jesus is making a point about, well, what does it really mean to be a priest? What does real priestly service look like? Who is binding up the wounds of the broken here? Who is pouring out the oil and the wine? Pouring out oil and wine were things that happened within worship, within the synagogue, that would normally be done by the priest or the Levite. (laughs) But who is pouring out the oil and the wine on this occasion? We are moved when we consider the depth of care that's being offered here. There's a risking of self for others... If you put the injured man up on the donkey, it means you've got to walk yourself and you're walking in an area where there are robbers. It means you're exposing yourself to to added risk. And when the Samaritan gets into town, Jericho, a Jewish town, a town where he's not welcome, (laughs) what does he do? He goes to the hotel, checks him in, pays the bill, um, make sure he's going to be cared for, puts an arrangement in place to pay anything extra. How does Jesus deal with us? Let's remind ourselves, Jesus takes the initiative towards us and he reaches down and he picks us up from the roadside in our own brokenness and he travels with us And he looks after us and he leads the way for us and he prepares a place for us. And he pays the price for us in advance with his own body and blood, a debt that we can never repay. But it is a a debt by which we can be inspired and that's what Jesus would have us do. I want to say just a couple of things about Jesus' redemptive work on the cross because, you know, sometimes I think we, we can look backwards in our faith and yes, um, what happened on the cross is the most significant event in human history but it doesn't end there. Jesus' death on the cross is not just about us as individuals, it's about the whole world. It's, it's for all people. And the second thing is that God's redemptive purposes on the cross stretch forward from the cross and stretch outward from the cross. They continue on and out as God seeks to establish his reign in all things in this world. The Spirit of Christ is calling out to us, preparing us, involving us in what is to come. And it's important to reflect on, well, what, what might God be calling you to? Just as God has called me in my life to get involved in this space of um, aid and development and relief work, what is God calling you to do in his kingdom? When we gather in worship, we sometimes pray the Lord's Prayer. That's the, the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. And the very first thing that we ask our Father in heaven in that prayer is... Your kingdom come on earth as it is in heaven. And for me, this is a prayer that doesn't allow us to just outsource responsibility for the world to God, to fix it all up. It's actually a prayer that is enlisting us in His service in the here and in the now. We are to live like we want His kingdom to come, like we expect it to come. And the Spirit of God invites us to think about what we can do together with God to restore the world just as he imagined it to be. To work with our sovereign God as we seek his kingdom here on this earth. So we're given this great, um, glorious responsibility to partner with God. And so we've got to resist the temptation, I think, to turn our faith into something that's pious or self-serving or a hobby or, you know, just something that we do on the weekends. We must not be like the priest or the Levite. We are people on a mission. Reaching out, loving, seeking to renew, giving and receiving mercy. Restoring, transforming being willing to embrace and learn from the outsider, people willing to reflect the love of the Trinity, the Father, the Son and the Spirit, in whose image we are made. It's that relationship, uh, that's the image into which we are made. So we've got to learn to be faithful, self-giving, sacrificial, obedient, um, as exists within the Godhead. That's what we're meant for. Now, one of the lasting impressions of the passage is that Christians are a people who love their neighbours and, of course, we choose to exercise compassion and mercy and I want to say something about Anglican overseas aid and I'm going to do it by talking a little bit about what's going on in Syria. Um, Syria has become the most large-scale and one of the most protracted um, humanitarian disasters in human history. You know, it's much bigger than the tsunami in Indonesia a few years back. It's now overtaken um, the post-war migration from World War II and the reconstruction of Europe. That's the scale of the thing. (laughs) It involves millions and millions and millions of people. Um, Just briefly by way of background, it all started in 2012 um, when the Arab Spring was on, there was sort of uh, an uprising across the Middle East, a number of Arab countries where different um, um, uh, Arab peoples were were trying to get uh, democracy put into their countries. Um, Syria had been ruled by a despot by the um, Bashar uh, al-Assad Um, and his family had been in control of Syria firmly since the 1970s, Um, and then it uh, turned violent and became a civil war. Um, Russia and Iran have intervened at different points, and Hezbollah, which is a Shia group, um, who are supportive of the existing regime. Meanwhile, there are Sunni uh, Muslims of varying... um, uh, types. Uh, there's ISIS on the eastern side, um, the Saudis are involved supporting some groups that are also trying to overthrow the government and so it's all become a bit of a proxy war between uh, Russia and the, in the US. But the thing that that's troubling um, is that there are people, uh, ordinary civilians, who are paying the price for this and... Uh, there's actually a significant number of Christians who live in Syria as well. They're mainly Orthodox, Greek Orthodox, Syrian Orthodox, um, Armenian Orthodox, uh, but they're 11 or 12% of the population. They're also caught up um, in the middle of this. So, <clears throat> you know, there's millions of people who are living in refugee camps now. Um, this one is in, in Jordan, but there's also refugee camps in Turkey um, and in Lebanon. Uh, millions of people, uh, 5 million people living in refugee camps on almost a permanent basis. And we've seen these pictures of people trying to escape from Syria, um, head especially to Europe, not only to Europe, but principally to Europe, and um, you know, this massive tide of human misery as people try to get out of the place. Now. You know, Anglican Overseas Aid, we're a little organisation. <laughs> you know, we, we, we've decided right from the start that we need to have a focus on something that's going to be as big as this. So our particular focus has been working with people within Syria, internally displaced people. There are 5 million people... Um, no, 6 million people are internally displaced and living within Syria. 5 million are living in refugee camps. 3 million are living in hard-to-reach and besieged locations. Um, so there's a, a massive humanitarian issue that goes with all of that, and the civil conflict continues on. Um, women and children continue to pay the price for it, um, and you may have seen in the media there have been reports of chemical weapons being used on civilian groups as part of this, and it's just so awful. Um, now, we are working with the uh, social services arm of the Orthodox Church, in or Orthodox Churches. They have one social services arm, the, um, um, the uh, IOCC is what it's called, um, International Orthodox Christian Charities. They're, that's the group that we've been engaged with basically because they've got the biggest footprint within the country and we think they're the best equipped to do it. Um, That's uh, one of the kids that's being uh, helped with um, some additional protein there. There's a lot of malnourished children. Um, When you drill down into what we're doing, it's very practical. So we're doing things like emergency food and water. Uh, We give out hygiene kits. Uh, We're involved in disease prevention, as you can imagine, when you've got a whole lot of people living together in temporary accommodation, um, that uh, disease can be a problem. Uh, We're providing water filters, um, bedding and educational support for kids whose education is disrupted um, because of the conflict that's going on around them. So... To bring it back to the Gospel, our call as disciples of Christ is to serve others and we do that sacrificially, we do that with compassion and we do that um, without discrimination and we learn to serve the world and the people in the world just as Christ has served, as Jesus has served us and that's a challenge before us I think, to learn to become neighbours in the way that Jesus has taught us um, and the way that he has demonstrated in his own life and sacrifice. So I just want to say thank you for the opportunity to be here, um, this church has been very supportive of the work of Anglican Overseas Aid and we're grateful for that, we um, value the partnership um, that we have and um, if you want to know more about the Syria conflict in particular, on the table outside is a little two pager which says a little bit more about the context, um, uh, including some of the um, political background that I touched on. And it's just on the table outside. So thank you very much, um, Tim and Kirk, for the opportunity to be here. Amen. <laughs>